Welcome to The Pethel Project, a podcast that explores the library of scripture, person of Jesus, and how they apply to our lives. My name is Joel, and I'll be your host as we go through a series of audio reflections. My prayer is that you would understand and meet the person of Jesus in a real and tangible way. Welcome back to The Pethel Project. I am very excited for uh, this week's episode, and it may be a little unconventional being that I'm actually not married, I'm single. And that is all right, because as we're going to see that we can actually go to the Bible uh, in and out of season with regards to anything in life, and it is going to show us uh, what to do. There's kind of a an acronym <laughs> Uh, it's basic instructions before leaving earth. That's what the Bible has been referred to as. And, and in any field of life, whether it be um, relationships with, with your friends, with fellow believers, non-believers, your spouse, children, work, commerce, psychology, philosophy, and, and most importantly, theology, how to know God. The Bible covers all these topics. And today we're going to look at at what the Bible says about marriage. And my heart is that you would fall in love with God's idea of marriage and why we even do it. It is kind of a, uh, almost a, it appears to be against human nature, uh, as we'll see so many other ancient uh, ethno-linguistic groups and people groups have traditionally been polygamists they, that means that it's it's usually been one uh usually in a patriarchal society a male and he would have multiple wives or concubines and that actually is not god's plan and the bible uh very uh uniquely gives us this countercultural way of living and and it's it's one man one woman which is so crazy, but we will see how God paints this as such a beautiful prophetic testimony of what God has planned for eternity and for the cosmos. So one of my favorite descriptions of the Bible, and it comes from a man named David Pawson, he says that the, the Bible is the greatest love story ever written. And it is the story of a father looking for a bride for his son. I love that. See, I've mentioned this in, in previous episodes, but the, the word Bible comes from the Latin word Biblia. And that is the word where we get library. So the Bible is actually 66 books that make up the Bible. And though each book book speaks to a unique situation and purpose, they are not a series of disconnected events. It is one story, and theologians will call this the meta-narrative. So I want to explore marriage as a meta-narrative in Scripture. See, the Bible opens and closes with marriage. Genesis 2.42 uh, says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And then Revelation, this is the closing of the Bible. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. <clears throat> Whoever testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So the Bible opens and closes with marriage. And this is um, beautiful in that we actually get married because of the Bible. There's There's been a lot of heated debate around what is marriage, um, who's allowed to get married. And this, this is outside the scope of the conversation. Marriage is a prophetic testimony of our Lord's coming. Now, in previous episodes, we also explored a quote from a theologian named G.K. Beale. And he says that the, the doctrine of eschatology, that is the, the end times, the study of the end times, the culmination of the ages, breathes life into every biblical doctrine, every theology. And what we're going to be looking at here is a systematic theology of marriage. And we're going to see how an eschatological perspective brings the reality of marriage to its completion. So in the ancient Near East, there's three uh, steps in a marriage, in the marital process. The first being that the two families, not even just the bride and the bridegroom, but the actual families would come together and agree that there would be a marriage, that their children would be married. And this is very foreign to us with a Western worldview, but there was once upon a time and still is in many parts of the world today, arranged marriages. And this is the case. And actually, this is interesting. I don't have any research to quote for the footnotes for this episode, but you can look it up on your own time. Stats show that there is less divorces in arranged marriages than non-arranged marriages, which is very interesting but that's outside the scope of this episode. So the two parents would agree that there would be a marriage. Essentially, they would make a covenant. Our children will get married. After that, the bride and the bridegroom would meet and they would become betrothed. They would agree. We call this an engagement. They would meet. And the bridegroom would present a dowry, a dowry to the bride. And this is, again, very outside our, our worldview. Uh, but that was, again, the custom and the, the Hebrew word for it is mohar. It's the dowry. And it would be equivalent to the, the value of the bride. Now, then what would happen in this marital process is that the bridegroom would go and prepare a place. He would go and purchase land either, you know, get involved in, in the family business, whatever it took to support this new household, this new family that was coming. He would get everything arranged. And then he would come back for his bride and there would be a wedding. And there would be a party. They would come together and um, celebrate. And there'd be the grand wedding banquet. And after this banquet, uh, the the two would go and become one flesh. The Bible uses the word no, or um, 
you know, <laughs> Marvin Gaye would say, let's get it on. There is sexual intercourse and that would be the consummation of the marriage. And the two would become one flesh. And this really is the story of the cosmos in that it is integration. It is these wildly different um, members of creation, male and female, made so beautifully individually on their own and so different. But the, but the Bible says that the two shall become one flesh. They will integrate. The two will become one flesh. And this is a testimony, a prophetic testimony that humankind will once again be restored with our Savior, that we will integrate. What, what a scandal that the God of the universe who calls forth the morning, who sets the stars in place, who knits us together in our mother's womb, who is holy, holy, holy beyond measure, perfect and righteous, in humility would choose to allow us into his presence, to integrate humankind into his presence. And we will see how I want to backtrack and show how the Bible actually provides prophetic witness of this integration that not only man and woman coming together in the Imago Dei, that is the image of God together, he made the male and female and together we are made in his image. That this is the marital union is a cry that says, come Lord. So I want to backtrack. If we are to look at the, the, the two parental parties coming together and agreeing that their children will be married. We actually see this in Genesis chapter 15 when Father God comes and meets with Father Abraham. Now, Abraham was one of the patriarchs we know in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you're unfamiliar with this, he is um, essentially the father of many. He is the man that God cut covenant with and promised that through Abraham that there would be a blessing to many nations. And now this, I'm going to read the text. This is Genesis um, 15, 1 through 21. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the hair of my house is Elzer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my hair. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your hair, for your very own son shall be your hair. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from, the, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, 
bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall, become, they shall come with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a, in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these, species, these pieces. And that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt, the great river, the river Euphrates, and the, the land of the Kenites, the Kezites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigtrites, and the Jebusites. All right, close quote. Now, let's just, you know, address the elephant in the room. This is weird. This is outside our... Um, Western worldview. Now, what this is, is an ancient form of cutting covenant. Now, we sign contracts now. We have legal documents. But in the ancient um, Near East, a covenant would be cut by taking these animals. And it says in verse 10, and he brought all of these and cut them in half and laid each of them against the other. They would take these animals, put them on each side of the road, cut in half, and the two parties would walk between the animals and say, if I break this covenant, let me be like one of these animals. And they would, it, the, the agreement is binding. Now, when we're considering this is a type of marital covenant, what's beautiful is that God actually puts Abraham to sleep. And the, the word even deep sleep that he, that is used to put on Abraham here is the same phrasing that God uses in the garden when he puts Adam in a deep sleep and takes the rib out of him to form Eve. This is, a, a, again, a type pointing to the marital, um, the marital message. God puts Abram to sleep and it is God alone who passes through the carcasses as if to say, Abram, you will drop the ball. You cannot remain faithful, but yet God will remain faithful that he will keep this covenant through hell or high water. And as we see through the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible play out, we will see that Abram's descendants are continuously rebellious. 
They continuously rebel against this covenant. They continually f- uh, chase after false gods. And the the language that's used in the Old Testament is that of infidelity. When God grieves the loss of his people's affection, he calls this infidelity that they are prostituting themselves after other gods. This this language of intimacy is saturated in the Old Testament text. But even when we go astray, God remains faithful. I'm so encouraged by that because God knows I have been reckless with my affection. And he is so patient, slow to anger, abounding in love and mercy. So the two parties, Father Abraham and Father God, agree that there will be a wedding. What comes next is the the bride and bridegroom must meet. And I love this. This is where it starts to get really good. In Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Now this is what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus himself steps on the scene as the bridegroom. Now, there's so much that we could unpack from these couple verses. And and to to give you husbands and wives marital advice is outside the scope of this teaching or outside the scope of my experience. But we need to shake off all the hurt and pain that we've experienced from broken marriages, distant fathers, D-bag boys. It's girls, if you're listening... Do not shape your perception from past hurts. We need to shape our perception on marital union and the opposite sex through Christ. He is the perfect bridegroom. I love what Mark says in Mark 10, 45. He says, for even the son of man came not to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the Son of Man, as we've pack, unpacked in other teachings in the segments already, is, is a very scandalous title that is taken from Daniel 7 that depicts this, this deity coming on the clouds in glory. And Jesus uses this term to refer to himself 77 times in the New Testament, three more times on the lips of others around him. But the Son of Man, this God incarnate, Literally, God, this this term is is beyond our human comprehension, came to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. And even so, as to give his life as a ransom for many. And this, husbands, are how we are to take a, a posture of serving into the marital covenant. To serve. Now, Jesus stepping on the scene as the bridegroom 
in this, this betrothal means that he actually needed to bring the dowry, the mohar. Now, for those of us who who are offended by the idea of a dowry, that we could be purchased through silver or cattle or cash, almost diminishes our value to think that, is my life not more than cattle? But see, the price is set so high that the only payment that could meet the value was Christ himself. God, God laid down his life as the dowry for his bride. It was the only thing valuable. There's an old Latin saying, it's one of the oldest sayings used in economics, is that a values, an object's value is determined by whatever someone's willing to pay. And God himself was willing to pay with his life for you, creating on you infinite value infinite identity, infinite worth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.20, do you not know that you were bought at a price? You were bought at a price. The dowry has been set and it is Jesus Christ himself. Now, after this meeting between the bride and the bridegroom, the, the bridegroom would go and prepare a place as we've seen. And we see this actually in John 14, two through three. It says, this is Jesus. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Our bridegroom has gone to prepare a place. And he promises he is coming back. Now in this, this in-between where we are in this present moment, we are postmen, so to say, sending out RSVPs to the greatest wedding the world has ever seen. In Matthew 22, 1 through 14, Jesus said this, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast but they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The King was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Now the question becomes, whose clothes are we wearing to this wedding? Figurative clothes, of course, but we can either enter on our own works, which will always come short and show us wanting, or we can show up on the robes of righteousness that are provided to us through Christ Jesus. Check out what the, the prophet Isaiah writes in 61, 10 through 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. I invite you to receive the garments of salvation, the robes of righteousness, that we may show up to this literal banquet, this celebration that is coming, and be ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what it says in Revelation 19, 6 through 8. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty perils of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. We are waiting for this wedding. Now it'd be, I have not exhausted this topic. You could go back and look at Jesus's parables, the 10 virgins, for example, or the 10 bridesmaids, this this language of marriage, of, of preparing for the marriage supper of the Lamb is thoroughly saturated throughout Scripture. And I would encourage you to go back and read. Read Matthew and look and see how our Savior presents this reality of the wedding supper. But once we are back to this idea of integration, after this banquet, this marriage ceremony, we have the privilege of entering into the glory of God. We see the glory in part, but we are in this already not yet of a fallen world where we still see pain and suffering and heartache and anguish. But there will come a moment where we can know God. Yes, you can know God now, but it is in part and what more could our hearts long for than more of God to be integrated with our Savior for eternity? For eternity. Now, this intimacy, this union or glory in our, our analogy of, of the marital process is now sealed with 
sexual union and intercourse, this knowing of one another, these this male-female opposites coming together in beautiful union, this integration as a testimony that we will one day be united with our Savior. And this is why sex is so attacked so attacked because it is the testimony it is the prophetic eschatological witness that our savior is coming and that we will know him god designed sex to be beautiful and pure and and true and as a witness a prophetic witness that we will know him so let us defend and stay true to the confines that God has set up for this prophetic declaration. Now in closing, I want to read a passage from a book of the Old Testament called Song of Solomon. This is a very spicy bit of literature and it is referring to um, the union of a king and his bride on their wedding banquet. And I pray that this, as we have seen, as we are the bride of Christ, we are the church longing for our king, for our bridegroom, that this would be our cry. And the author writes, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustaining me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. May we be a people that does not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. May we not go after fading pleasures, second-class idols, second-class groomsmen, second-class gods, idols. Let us wait for the wedding supper of the Lamb for our allegiance. And may we protect the marital union as a prophetic declaration. John closes the whole Bible again in the words of matrimony. And he says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Just a little later down, he says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pethwell Project. If you like what you heard, feel free to give us a rating or even better, share this with one of your friends. For more information, check out our website at pethwillproject.com or follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Pethwill Project.